And we love to get together and give thanks to you, our God. And so we praise you for this week. We praise you for time with family. And we praise you for the wonderful food that is also a gift from your hand. And we praise you for this hour, the most important part of the week, when we come and give thanks to your name and magnify your glory so that we will know the joy of living according to the purpose that you have established for us. We are yours, and we love to sing your praises. And so we pray, Father, that even in our hearts now as we listen, that our hearts would be singing your praises. And Lord, be glorified in this hour, we pray, in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. This being Thanksgiving weekend, I wanted to take a a Sunday to kind of jump forward in our study. And uh, we have been in the Psalms, and I want to look at a specific Psalm that expressly focuses on a life of Thanksgiving and worship. Last week, we looked at Psalm 25. This morning, I'd like... I'd like for you to join me as we kind of leap ahead to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. You can begin turning there now. You can try to find it. Psalm 103 has been a delight to the church of Jesus as long as there has been a church of Jesus. And I suspect it's familiar to everyone who has invested any amount of time reading the Psalter. This is the kind of psalm that just sticks with you. It's easy to understand. It's, it's unlike uh, the psalm we looked at last week in the sense that its, its structure is very simple. Remember last week we talked about the difficulty of trying to find any kind of flow, any kind of structure, and, and we discovered that that was intentional on the part of the author. But this week is different. The structure is, it seems rather clear and, and easy to follow. Of course, Various students of the scriptures are going to divide it up a little bit differently and tag things a little bit differently. Some are going to be more creative than others. Mine's not that creative. Uh, But I think uh, it's most natural to examine this psalm according to three divisions, and I will add an introductory category uh, later. I, I would have separated that out completely, except I needed to get my outline in really early on a holiday week. Um, as, we, as we see in just, we'll see in just a minute, David calls the entire cosmos, beginning with his own soul, to bless the Lord. And what we're going to see in this psalm is that David calls us to bless the Lord specifically, to bless the Lord soberly, and here's a big word for you, to bless the Lord magisterially. So let's begin, as always, by taking just a few minutes to stand together in honor of God's word, and let's read the text of Psalm 103. Psalm 103, beginning with verse 1. Of David, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits who forgives all of our iniquities and heals all our diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. 
The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving, loving kindness. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay, uh, repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom, his sovereignty, rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. By way of introduction and overview, I kind of want to front load the outline with an additional category in addition to the three that I gave you, namely to bless the Lord expansively. And I know that's first in your bulletin. For this point, I just want you to consider kind of what's going on in David's heart, what's going on, I think, in David's mind. I want you to see David's approach to worship in this psalm is expansive. It grows. It gets bigger as he goes on. It begins with the presumption, my presumption, that there is the revelation of the glory of God. And, and, and that could be anything. I think it's safe to infer that behind the scenes, David finds himself surrounded by the glory of God as as we do, every time we look around, we see the glory of God and the people who are around us and, and outside. Yesterday, my wife and I went for a walk, or the day before, and we were just looking at trees, the glory. I mean, we're having an unusually beautiful fall here in North Texas, and we just walked around, and, and look at that red tree. Look at that orange tree. Look at that one that's red and orange and black and green, and, and it looks like a, a, an artificial Christmas tree, and yet it's real. And we see the glory of God. And maybe for him it was the mountains, or maybe it was the temple, or maybe it was the people of God around him. We don't know. But then at some point he notices or he perceives something of the manifest glory of God. And what rises up within him is the realization that the only appropriate response to the glory of God is to praise him to bless the Lord. And David apparently realizes his own inadequacy to worship the Lord as he ought in that moment. And so he begins preaching to himself. 
Come on, soul. Wake up, oh my soul. Be alive. Break free from your lethargy. Some of us need to be saying that throughout the rest of this sermon. Break free from your lethargy, oh soul. Let all that is within me, not half of what's in me, not one-fourth of what's in me, let all that is within me bless the Lord. Remember the goodness and loving kindness of God, blessings that he alone has poured out and we have received from him and we receive every day. And then verses 3 through 14, he comes up with kind of a catalog of benefits, a catalog of blessings that he remembers. And, and he understands he's writing this for posterity. He's writing this so other people can read it, maybe so the choir can sing it. And so he identifies things that all of us, all of us can identify with. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't come up with a list of things that are specific for you and your life and your family. I encourage you to do that. But David is interested in, in things that we can all bless the Lord over. And then finally, when he has done all he can to preach to his own soul, we come to verse 20, and he starts preaching to the angels and the cosmos. Bless the Lord, you his angels. Bless the Lord, all his hosts and all his works. His works meaning anything he's created, <clears throat> anything and everything that he has created should bless the Lord. I think all of us would benefit right here from the start of this psalm if we would consider how proactive David was in dealing with the lethargy of his own soul to the manifest glory of God. We get so caught up in our own uh, in our own activities, in our own disciplines, in our, in our own distractions, in our own duties in life, that we just breathe past things that are screaming the glory of God. I was reminded this morning, I, I looked it up, Richard Baxter talked about this, and he said, you know, if you're not careful, you can come to church with a lethargic heart and find yourself acting like the blacksmith's dog, asleep under the anvil while sparks and flames are flying all over the shop. And we've got to be careful of this. David was very, very careful. He insisted that his soul would wake up and see the glory of God. And I don't know about you, but I have to do that on a regular basis. So David blesses the Lord expansively. Second, and really the first part of the structure of this psalm, David blesses the Lord specifically. This is verses 2 through 14. And, and let's look at verse 1 again. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. name. So, of course, the first question you need to ask yourself is, what does it mean to bless the Lord? If you're talking to your own soul and you're trying to convince it to do something, you ought to know what you're trying to convince it to do. And in this psalm and in other psalms, not in this psalm, but in other psalms that, that uh, speak in this kind of way, like Psalm 97, there is a synonym used that I think perfectly matches what David is saying. It's the word ascribe, and I read it to you a few moments ago. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. There is about God an essential glory that Keith talked about this morning relative to the Trinity. He didn't need any angels to be glorified or to be glorious. 
There is an intrinsic glory, an overflow of glory, but that's not what David is talking about here. He is talking about ascribing glory or noticing the glory and declaring what you see. To bless or to ascribe glory to the Lord is to joyfully reflect his glory back to him and do it verbally and do it from the heart and do it with singing and with praying. I loved our time this morning with uh, the elders and our two new prospective elders who joined us for the first time today. We had the sweetest time of prayer this morning, and, and almost all of us had a scripture to bring to bear on our prayer time, and it, it was just a sweet time of ascribing glory to the Lord. David is telling his soul to do that. He's telling his soul to praise the Lord. The term soul here means your inner man, your mind, your heart, your mental and moral powers. The soul of man was made to praise the Lord. You were created for this, to praise the Lord and to enjoy him, to enjoy his friendship, to delight in his favor, to contemplate his perfections. The soul of man, listen carefully, the soul of man can never be employed in a more elevated act than when it is engaged in the praise of its maker. There are other important acts that you should do. Going to work is important. Taking care of your babies is important. Taking care of your property is important. Going, you know, serving people who are needy, that's important. But you were created to magnify the glory of God. And all that is within me, David says, all that is within me, all my powers, all my faculties, all that, all that can be employed in his praise, my heart, my will, my, infec- my affections. The idea here is that God is worthy of all the praise and adoration of the entire man. Whatever it is that makes you human, let that praise the Lord. No one, not any of his faculties or powers should be exempt from the duty and the privilege and joy of praising the Lord. And this text is full, not only of duty, but of joy and of praise to God for who he is and what he has done. And then verse 2, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits, or forget None of his benefits. Now David exhorts himself to actively strive to recall the benefits of living in reconciled relationship with God. You know, everybody lives in relation to God. God is in the air we breathe. He is everywhere. He is omnipresent. We live, as it were, in the atmosphere of God. David said in in Psalm 139, where can I go from his presence? He's everywhere. We all live in relation to God. For the unbeliever, that's terrifying. But for us, it's the greatest delight of our souls. He is always near. He is always with us. And from this point, he offers a lengthy catalog of benefits that he has experienced personally, along with those that are experienced by the people of God together, and then finally by the angels of heaven and their experience in God's presence. Oh, my friend, this is an essential characteristic of a Christian. 
that we give thanks to the Lord for his many benefits toward us. And we've observed this before, but in Romans 1, when Paul is talking about the unbeliever who exchanges the glory of God for images, one of the characteristics of an unbeliever in that passage is that he does not give thanks. But for the child of God, we love to say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for this meal. That's why we pray before we eat. Thank you for this meal. This is a gift. We worked hard for it, but it's a gift from your hand. You know, thank you. Thank you for this house. Thank you for this church that's paid for. Thank you for the people. Thank you for the policemen who are keeping us safe and for the firemen and for our military. Thank you for, for our government. Thank you that we live in a free... I mean, you could spend all of your time thanking the Lord for his good gifts. It is essential that believers, that followers of God in Christ, be thankful people. And we live to give thanks to him for all that we have received from his hand. And, and what have we received from his hand? Everything that we have. Everything. And so this is essential for us. We should not be surprised then that David creates kind of a thanksgiving journal. And I was going to bring one of mine this morning. Uh, every week, at least a few times a week, a couple of times a week, I, I try to add to it. Uh, what, what can I remember from this past week that I can not just thank God for, but I can record it so that in the future when I get, I get down or I get wondering if God is still active in my life, I can flip back and see his past graces, at least the ones that I have recorded for myself. This is what David is doing. He's kind of creating a Thanksgiving journal, and in it he records some of the reasons that humans should praise and worship God. And so let the catalog begin. Verse 3, watch this. Who forgives all our iniquities? He forgives all our sin. This is the beginning. It's not just the beginning of his list, it is the beginning of everything for us. It's worthy of note here that this is the first benefit the psalmist thinks of because this is the foremost. It is of first importance that above all else, God is a forgiving God. If he were not a forgiving God, we could not know him. And we would not be here this morning with each other. He is a forgiving God. This is the first thing which calls for praise. He forgives all our sins. Do you think that you have a sin that God cannot forgive? Then you don't know God. And oh, how grateful you would be if you would, by faith, believe that he forgives all of your sin. He forgives all of your sin. And then verse 4, he heals all our diseases. There's some discussion in the literature about whether David is referring here to spiritual sickness or whether he's talking about physical sickness. On the one hand, the prophet Isaiah and others in the Old Testament speak about our spiritual diseases. Isaiah 53 even mentions it. For which our Messiah will come and heal us. He will forgive our sins. He would take care of our debt to God. But on the other hand, we also know that when Yahweh came in person, in the person of Jesus Christ, he healed 
throngs of people of their physical diseases. And, and I put both of these out here because I don't think we need to make a decision on which one is right. I think, is it, is it spiritual or is it physical? The answer is yes, yes. He heals all our diseases. The fact is, God heals our sins. And every time we, cover, we, we recover from f- some physical ailment, whether it be a fever or a back condition or, or some pain or whatever, the healing is always a gift from God. It's always a gift from his hand, just as surely as every meal you eat is a gift from his hand. Every paycheck that you receive is a gift from his hand. He can stop it whenever he wants to. And he can give it to you even if you can't work. And he can take it away from you when you're working your hardest. He is Lord. And he loves to give. And he continues in verse 4. He redeems your life from the pit. The pit here speaks of the grave. That's where you go after you die. You go to the pit. For the child of God, however, the grave is not the end. The sting of death is removed for those who have been redeemed. And we have to think here momentarily about the book that comes before the book of Psalms, and and that is the book of Job, who may be the very first contributor to Holy Writ, Job, that is. And this is what Job declared. He said, I know, in the midst of his horrific suffering, I know that my Redeemer lives, and even after my skin has been destroyed, it's a reference to death, Yet in my flesh I shall, what? See God. That is a thinly veiled reference to resurrection. And then verse 4 again. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. The idea of crown here is that it's something that beautifies a person and sets them apart. A crown indicates that we're related to the king. We're of a special lineage. This is what his love and mercy do for us. The fact that he pours out his love and mercy on us is like a crown to us. It separates us from those who in the the last day will know only his wrath. And it beautifies us in his eyes and in one another's eyes because his compassion makes us compassionate. His grace makes us gracious. His love makes us loving. Not everyone gets this crown. The crown is only for those who are sons of God by faith. Or as he repeatedly says in this psalm and last week's psalm, those who keep his covenant. And we talked last week a little bit about the fact that nobody keeps the covenant perfectly. No, And they didn't back then either. The question is whether you're living by faith in God's promises. Are you living by faith? Are you being justified? Have you been justified by faith? And is that faith active and living? Do you believe and keep on believing? Do you obey and keep on obeying, however imperfectly, because you love God with all of your heart and you own your sin? And then he says, verse 5, he satisfies you 
with goods so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. I like this. The older I get, the more I like this. <clears throat> no matter how old one becomes, he can be young at heart in the things of God. He can have a heart that knows a satisfaction in life that the young rarely know. In Psalm 90, David says, Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, your hesed, which he repeatedly speaks of in this psalm, with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad. How long? All our days. All of our days. Even in our old age, we can mount up with wings as eagles, like eagles, he says. And what we may lack in physical strength, we can make up for in spiritual vitality if we choose to walk with him and follow him. And then verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for the oppressed. Again, he's, he's giving us a category, a catalog of, of things for which he is thankful. And this is the next one. The Lord works righteousness and justice for the oppressed. David confessed that Yahweh is always doing what's right. He has established righteous rules for his people to follow, laws designed to ensure that justice is done and that the, the vulnerable are protected. That doesn't mean that no unrighteousness will be done. It doesn't mean that people won't at least temporarily get, a, get away with unrighteousness, but it does mean that it's God's will for righteousness to reign. It is according to God's character that one day righteousness will reign. And in the end, we have the promise that he will right all wrongs. In the meantime, we must follow the example of Jesus, who although he was treated with ultimate injustice, simply kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He is a God of righteousness. He always leads us down the right path. It's the correct path, it's the moral path, it's the path that best rec reflects his character. And then verse 7, he made known, or you could say he revealed his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. One of the great blessings of God is that he has not hidden himself from us. We don't have to go searching for him. We don't have to get a theological education and get to the end of it and hope that we find him. No, God loves to reveal himself to us. He is, he is a God who has given us revelation, which is why we have his word. He reveals himself to us, and he invites us to know him. In fact, in verse 8, he follows up. It's a follow-up to verse 7. He says this, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, this is how God describes himself. You want to know God? Then know this about God. God is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's not like the other so-called gods that you have to sacrifice your children to. This is a merciful and gracious God. This is how God describes himself to Moses on the mountain when Moses, you remember when he led the people out of Egypt across the Red Sea, they're complaining, they're, they're wanting to go back to Egypt and, and the Lord wants to strike them dead and, 
And that kind of gets settled for a little while. Moses goes up the mountain and he's meeting with God and he says, God, listen, if I'm going to lead these people, you've got to show me your glory. And God said, uh, problem, no one can see my glory and live. No one can see my glory and live. So God puts him in the cleft of the rock. He covers him with his hand, as it were, and he reveals to Moses his verbal glory. And by that I mean this is God's description of himself. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious and slow to anger. In other words, he is patient with his people. Hey, think about that. Let that sit in. God is patient with us. I mean, there's no ambiguity. It's one thing for me to be patient with one of my kids or with another or, or guy on the road. Maybe I don't understand all the facts. He's getting in my way or he's bugging me. Or maybe I don't understand all the facts. Listen, God understands all the facts. He knows everything that's going on. He knows every intention of the heart. He knows if it's, if it's righteous or wicked or whatever else. And he is patient. He's patient with his people. He's not volatile. He's not capricious. He's not unpredictable. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So his patience is a perfect patience. And there has never been a single day that he has not treated you better than you have treated him. But there's more. Verse 8, God is abounding in steadfast love. There's that chesed again. His steadfast love and faithfulness. He is 10,000 times more faithful to us than we can ever be to him. He constantly overflows with faithfulness and love and mercy. He is a fountain, an ever-flowing fountain of faithfulness, mercy, and love. And actually, these two verses, 7 and 8, are lifted right off the pages in Exodus 34. Here's the full quote. Again, he's speaking to Moses. He's, he's giving Moses his verbal glory. He's describing himself with words. And this is what he says. And we read in 34, 6 and 7, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Listen carefully. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty. He forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin, but will not clear the guilty. Do you see a problem there? I mean, if he's forgiving the wicked, they're guilty. That's why they need forgiveness. That's why theologians refer to this as the riddle of the Old Testament. How can it be that God forgives sins and yet won't let the guilty off the hook? Answer, God has provided a way for sins to be righteously forgiven. It was foreshadowed in the temple sacrifices. It was foreshadowed all the way back at least in type form, with Abraham almost killing Isaac 
but killing the ram instead. It was fulfilled in the final sacrifice of Messiah himself, the Lamb of God, who came to take away the sins of the world. What's the answer to the riddle? The answer is Messiah. The answer is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the answer to the riddle. God, this is God's verbal glory. He is slow to anger. He is merciful and gracious. He is abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty. You say, well, where does that last phrase fit in, that he will not clear the guilty? Listen, you can be forgiven, but the only way that can happen is to come to him by faith. You must believe that what he has required, he has provided for you. That you are not self-sufficient in this regard. You cannot save yourself. No amount of good works can save you. You must come to him for the righteousness you desperately need and don't have. You can't earn it. It has to be given to you. And it can be given to you in Christ and Christ alone. Verse 9, David is continuing with his catalog of things he's thankful for. He says, he will not always, that is, God will not always chide. You know, you read the, the book of, well, the, the, the Old Testament, and you see that the Israelites were always in trouble. They're always sinning. They're always turning their back on God, and yet he entered covenant with these sinful people. He entered covenant with us, too, by the way, in Christ Sometimes he disciplines his children and it's painful. It's a painful thing. And if you're living in disobedience, you may feel like you're under discipline all the time. But that's not what the Lord wants. His discipline is temporary. One day, we will see him face to face and become like him in holiness and purity. And then there will be no need for correction. You will be whole. You will be like him. In verse 9, nor will he keep his anger forever. It's not in his character to retain anger for its own sake or for any personal gratification. God doesn't get a buzz out of being angry at people. When he displays his anger, it is always a holy anger. It is always a holy anger. He's not seeking to ruin He's not seeking to ruin us. He is out for our good. Just, I mean, you can look at Hebrews chapter 12. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, yet in the end, it yields the peaceful fruit of what? Righteousness. God is working righteousness in you. And then verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sin. There it is again. David knew, as well as any of us, how sinful he was. Again, this is a great ground for thanksgiving and praise. God does not deal with his people according to their sins. Uh, I look back at Albert Barnes. If you're familiar, when I was a kid, I remember the uh, older man in my church referring to Barnes' notes. And it turns out I have a copy. And I got looking at it this week, and 
And here's a quote from Barnes. He says on, on this point, he says, It is a matter for which we should render unceasing praise that God has not done to us as our sins deserve. Who of us can fail to stand in awe and tremble when we think what God might have justly done to us, what sufferings he might have brought upon us, which would have been no more than we have deserved, what pain, what distress of mind, what anguish and bereavement, what sorrow, danger, sickness, losses we might have suffered before the point would be reached at which it could be said that we were suffering more than a holy and just God might properly inflict upon us. He will never go beyond what is right. But at the same time, he will never give us all that we deserve in terms of punishment. Beloved, he poured out his punishment on Jesus. When you see the horror of the cross, understand that God was pouring out his anger, his wrath, not upon you, but upon his son. Beloved, I think we'll spend eternity praising and thanking God for what he has not given us. He did not give us what our souls deserved. Verse 11, why does he treat us this way? Well, because as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. How high are the heavens above? When I asked myself this question, I happened to be sitting in front of my computer and I Googled, what's the closest star outside of our solar system? And I ran into this interesting video where a scientist was trying to describe it. He was out on the football field and he had these little squares, and one of them had a little dot. You couldn't even see it. You had to get a, a, a magnifying glass. And it was the earth next to a slightly larger dot, only about a half an inch away. And that was our sun. And then he said, if, if you want to see where Pluto is, follow me. And he takes his measuring tape, and he goes out about 300 yards. And he puts another little dot with a, I mean, a little square with a dot that you, you can't see without hardly a magnifying glass. And he talks about the distance and how great it is. And he, and he said, but if you're wondering what our closest star is, Alpha Centauri, um, we have to go a little further. And he runs over and he jumps in his car. And it's on video, and he's just, he's driving, he's on fast forward, right? It's just speed, he's going past all, he's crossing highways, he's going and going and going, and he stops for a break, and then he gets back in the car, and he goes, 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 and he goes. Over a hundred miles he drives, and he pulls over onto a dirt road, and he drops another square. And he said, relatively speaking, <laughs> this is the closest star. And I discovered it's not one star, it's three of them. They just look like one, even to astronomers. As high as the heavens are above the earth. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his chesed, his loving kindness, his steadfast love toward those who fear him. That's why he doesn't count our sins against us. He is... Love is greater than all our sin, infinitely greater than all our sin. And then verse 12, he says this, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, 
So far does he remove our transgressions for us. I mean, you kind of get the point here. He's using hyperbole. He's using his imagination to communicate something that is, that is beyond our ability to comprehend. It's like when Paul talks about the love of God that he wants you to know that is beyond knowing. It's the same thing here. East and West, what are they? They're, well, they're points in our apprehension. <laughs> they're not really places. They're points in our, in our apprehension most distant from each other. And as we can conceive nothing beyond either one, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And so the meaning is, we cannot imagine our sins could be more effectually removed from us than they are. You think your, your sin is very, very close and that the only thing God sees when he looks at you is a big mass of sin. It's not true. He's taken all of your sin. He has thrown it as far as the east is from the west. His loving kindness is higher than the highest heavens. And there's a reason for it. There's a reason why he treats us. Why does he, I mean, you've got to ask, Why? Why do you treat us with such kindness? Verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to, here's the qualifier, to those who fear him. To those who fear him. The fear of the Lord. I love Jerry Bridges has a book called The Joy of of fearing God. He could have equally called it the joy of being a Christian. Because if you are a Christian, you want to live in obedience to God. And the thing that you don't want is to do anything that would displease your father. You're not afraid that he could crush you like a bug. He would never do that. But he's your father. He is holy God. He is the almighty. He loves you. And the last thing in the world you want to do is disappoint or turn your back on him. And yet he treats us like a father who is compassionate toward his children. He shows compassion to those who fear him. Now, here's something to thank God for. If nothing else has rung your bell so far, he, that is God who has created all of this, has made himself your father. And we could go to the New Testament and find the doctrine of adoption. He's adopted you into his family. He has brought you into his forever family and treats us with grace and compassion. Why? Well, because, verse 14, he knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. I love that text. God doesn't think more highly of me than he ought to. God doesn't think that I can handle things that I can't handle. I can probably handle a lot more than I think I can. But he knows my frame. He knows my frame. What would you rather have? A car built on an iron, tubular iron frame or a car that's built on spaghetti sticks. 
He knows your frame. He knows what you're capable of. He knows how much you can endure. He will never give you more than you can handle, Paul teaches us, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He knows our frame. He remembers that we're but dust. He's not shocked by our weakness and our frailness. He knows how easily we are broken down by trial and temptation. He's not shocked by that. He's not shocked by your sin. Oh, my friend, do you get David's message here? There are no, there's no lack of reasons why we should bless the Lord with everything that is within us. We should bless the Lord specifically. And we should do this actively. That's not a separate point. But it's something to take home. Are you actively blessing the Lord for specific things that he does in your life? Are you keeping track of any of it? Do you write any of it down? Do you log it in some memory box or book? David did. David actually wrote it down. We have it here. It's on the page because he wrote it down. It's a good model for us. It's a good model. You know, you know what the theme of Deuteronomy is? The theme of Deuteronomy is remember and do not forget. Remember and do not forget. Remember and do not forget. All the way through Deuteronomy, remember and do not forget. Why does God have to say that to us? Good night. I can't hardly get from <laughs> where my keys are to where my car is before I forget why I was going to my car. <laughs> remember and do not forget. You know what? I don't have to remember a lot of these things. I can open up my journals and read them. And they remind me of other things that God has done. My friend, this is David's message to us. Bless the Lord. Remember his goodness and his grace. And ascribe to him the glory due his name. Number three in your outline, bless the Lord soberly. Look at verses 15 and 16. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. When the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it, no more. David comes to this section where he compares man with God. Let's talk about the difference between man and God. What's, what's a substantial difference between man and God? Well, man, he, he springs to life, the wind blows, he falls over, and he dies and nobody remembers him. He's like a flower, he's like, it's like grass every winter. I'm going to be probably doing this soon. I, I overseed my lawn with ryegrass, and it grows, and it makes everybody says, oh, how do you get your grass so green in the winter? Well, I sow seed on it every winter. I throw it. I throw it. My dog tries to bite it when I throw it, and that's fun. And, uh, and, it, and it gets in the dirt, and it springs up, and we get this beautiful, beautiful grass. Problem is, in... Texas, winter doesn't last very long, and as soon as the sun starts getting up to 80 and the soil temperature rises, guess what happens to my grass? It just turns brown and dies. And you know what? When it gets cold again, it doesn't wake up. It doesn't get resurrected. I have to reseed all over again. 
And David is saying, that's what humans are like. So frail, just made of dust. I mean, it doesn't take much more than a wind. And you're, you're gone. We're like grass, like a flower that flourishes for a time in the field. But before long, the heat comes and the grass and the flower fade. They shrivel up, they disappear. And no one even remembers where they were. This is a sobering reality, isn't it? I mean, forget about your legacy. Forget about the possibility of people remembering, where, remembering you when you're gone. I mean, as soon as your funeral is over, guess what? People are going to start forgetting you. My great-great-grandchild one day will find a photograph and go to his mommy and say, Mommy, who is this man? And it'll be a picture of me. And her mommy will say, Gee, we should have put a name on the back of this photograph (laughs) so we could remember who he was. We got photographs in our house. Who is that? We don't know. Those poor people. And David's explaining why that happens. We don't even remember them. We we don't remember that flower. It's just gone. My friend, your life is shorter than you think. And it's a whole lot less important than you think. In just a moment, the wind will pass over your little flower of a life and you will be gone. And not long after that, no one will even remember you. What's the point of that? I just wanted to encourage you. (laughs) Here's the point. Your only hope is that you secure yourself to something that's eternal. Something that will not be shaken or even affected by death. My friend, today is the day for you to bless the Lord soberly. Take on a stock of your life and cry out to God and say, Dear Lord, you are my only hope. Jesus is my only Savior. I surrender to his lordship over my life and over my eternity. If you don't know Christ, if you don't have this hope, that's that's what you need to pray this morning. And that brings us to the final theme. David calls us, number four, to bless the Lord magisterially. I use magisterially because I wanted to get the word majestic in here because now we're talking about the king. We should bless him as our majestic, sovereign king. Uh, The message that David wants us to hear is this, that God isn't like us. What is God like? Well, verses 17 and 18, we read this. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Now, we've already talked about his steadfast love, and we've already talked about his mercy and his kindness. What we haven't talked about is his infinitude, that he is infinite in all of his holy perfections. He is unaffected by death. He is unaffected by sin. He is unaffected by Satan. He's unaffected by angels or demons. How can the steadfast love of the Lord be from everlasting to everlasting? Answer, it's because God is from everlasting to everlasting. 
He had no beginning. He will have no end. His love, therefore, had no beginning, and it will have no end. In fact, the the New Testament clearly teaches he set his love upon you before the creation of the world. Moreover, God is sovereign Lord over all. I like the way this reads better in the New American Standard. He says, the Lord has established his throne and his sovereignty rules over all. On the other hand, I like the translation kingdom because sovereignty gets front-loaded with a bunch of theology and we can miss the point here. This is about him as king. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He is king of all. And everything that exists is in his realm, his kingdom. In verse 19, this is, this is made very, very clear. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. Where is God? He's sitting on his throne. Where is God when, when, when there's war in Israel? I mean, even today, when, when the rockets are flying and there's conflict, where is God? He's sitting on his throne. Where is God when the stock market crashes? He's sitting on his throne. Where is God when your best friend leaves you and hates you? He is on his throne. His sovereignty rules over all. God is sovereign over everything. And he works all things for your good if you love God and are called according to his purpose. And then we can ask, by what authority does God forgive sins? By what authority does he crown us with love and compassion? By what authority does he cast our iniquity from us as far as the east is from the west? He does all of these things and 10,000 other by the authority of his own sovereign reign as king of kings and lord of lords. He made himself as nothing for our sakes, and humbled himself, became a man, became a servant of men. He lived a life of perfect righteousness so his righteousness could be applied to our account, and then he died the sinful death that we deserved. He owns it all, and he purchased all who know him by his own blood. He is king. And with that thought in mind, David makes his final call to bless the Lord when he writes in verses 20 through 22. Bless the Lord, O you, his angels. He's he's done talking to himself and to Israel. Who else is left? Who else can can I order to do what they ought to be doing? And who's left? The angels. Bless the Lord, O you, his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word, bless it. Don't, don't just obey him, bless him, praise him, honor him, ascribe to him the glory to his name. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, host is his armies. Lord of hosts means captain of an, of an army of angels. All you, his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord. And and now he's done with the angels and he goes to everything else. Bless the Lord, all his works. That means the moon, the sun, Alpha Centauri, Pluto. 
and whatever else we're finding out there. Bless the Lord, all his works. And when you see the light shining at a sunset or a sunrise and you see a tree blazing with color, you should look at that and say, bless the Lord, tree. (laughs) It's what you're doing. Bless the Lord, sun and moon and stars. Bless the Lord, mosquitoes. I'd have a hard time with that one, but... Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. He reigns over everything that we will one day find, and maybe not, out there. And down there in the ocean, they found something new last week. They keep finding new things in the ocean no one's ever seen before. God created them for his glory. Well, how in the world can God be glorified by that if we can't see it and ascribe glory to him? Listen, he created it for himself. He can walk around down there and enjoy it whenever he wants to. He loves everything that he's created, and some of it we've never even seen. So bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. And then he comes all the way back around to himself and says, bless the Lord, O my soul. Oh, beloved, have you forgotten his benefits? You know, sometimes the uh, disappointment or the pain or the unhappy circumstances can cause you to forget how blessed you are. And do you recognize how blessed you are this morning to live in a reconciled state with Almighty God? And children, do you realize how privileged you are to grow up in a Christian home where you are learning how you can be reconciled to a holy God? You can live in fellowship with him. I say to you, beloved, bless the Lord. Ascribe to him the glory due his name. Wake up every morning. And when you give thanks for the next meal, don't just mumble what you always mumble. Tell the Lord, thank you. Bless the Lord for the meal. Bless, don't bless the meal. Bless, the meal's probably good. But bless the Lord for giving it to you, for he is worthy. Remember his goodness and worship him as he deserves. Let's pray. Lord, we fall far short when it comes to giving you the worship and praise that you are due. It's easy to act like we're worshipful people when we come and we sing the songs and, and we listen to the sermon and we even talk about the Lord a little bit. But from our heart of hearts, oh, Father, we want to be better at this. We want to be more aware of your goodness to us. We want to be more thankful to you for your grace and your steadfast love. And so, Lord, we ask for your help. And I ask for anyone in this room who doesn't have that kind of relationship with Jesus that today may be their day when they repent. They repent of their own righteousness. They repent of their own sovereignty over their lives. And they bow before the Lord Jesus and receive him as their king and savior and sovereign God. Lord, we praise you and give you thanks for it all in Jesus' name.